Do you like sports? Do you like art? What about science? Giraffes? Giraffe scientists that paint rugby games? It's all available on Audible, the biggest audiobook site with the largest selection of audiobooks this side of the inner solar system. No need to use your boring old eyes anymore. The ears are the future, my friend. Why, you're using them right now. So check out Audible and get your listen on. Go to www.readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to start your 30-day free trial today. We're always talking about F this and F that, but at some point it's like we have to embrace certain structures and systems because that's what society is. That's what being social is, is giving up your own um, your own uh, ideas and trusting other people and, and repeatedly saying, I don't know, I don't know. I think the biggest thing that we have to learn right now is to be comfortable saying, I don't know, I don't understand everything. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 68, where the eggnog is more nog than egg. As always, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured or of authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at jon at relearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with author John Dermot Woods about his book, Always Blue. John Dermot Woods writes stories and draws comics in Brooklyn, New York. His books include the novel The Baltimore Atrocities, published by Coffeehouse Press, and a collection of comics with the title Activities, published by Publishing Genius Press. He recently published a science fiction chapbook, Always Blue, as part of Radix Media's Futures series. He is a founder of the online arts journal Action Yes!, and a professor of English and creative writing at SUNY Nassau Community College. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. My name is John Manaster. I am your host. Very excited to be here on this Sunday afternoon with John Dermot Woods, author of Always Blue. John, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, yeah. Super excited. I've uh, you know gotten to interview several other uh, Radix authors and... Um, really enjoy it. And this is a great addition to that series, Always Blue. Um, so maybe just quickly tell us what the, what the story is all about. Um, so Always Blue is, this is the, I guess this is the first piece of science fiction that I've published. Um, and it's a story of a guy named Schultz, who is uh, a professor at the academy, we call it. He, he lives on an island that uh, where the weather is controlled by um, a series of engineering measures that he designs called the wind wall. And it's in a world where the weather has gotten so difficult that um, the uh, rest of the earth is totally unpredictable. Uh, Schultz created the wind wall, which uh, has created a... Uh, controlled environment on this one island where he has lived his whole life. Um, and after this great professional success, he was given a job as a professor at the academy where people are, engineers are trained. And this is him dealing with the stresses of his life and with the suggestion that maybe 
the perfectly controlled weather of their island may be failing, but it's something that he doesn't necessarily want to have to face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I thought that, that whole part was fascinating, and especially as we you know head towards winter here and looking up at the ominous clouds. Yeah. The, the wind wall does sound nice, uh, but it comes with some, some issues as we find out. So uh, before we delve into the, the story itself, I always like to kind of chat about the creative process a little bit beforehand. And so I, I guess I thought I'd start out by just asking, you know, why did you decide to write this book now? Why, why this particular story was important for you to tell? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think probably like most writers, I, the, the story emerges on its own, you know, the, it's more, uh, more a result of our preoccupations and anxieties than the intent of actually addressing the issues of the world we're in. Mm -hmm. Um, although that may be one of the same, our anxieties come from the world we're in. Um, so in this case, I think, um, I thought a lot about ideas of isolation. I began writing this, this story about four years ago when I was living for a year up in Northern New York state, uh, which is an incredibly isolated area in a lot of ways, um, both by weather and geography and economics. Um, and, um, I think also, you know, I was thinking in a way, although, you know, you can't deny that this is a, a story that's addressing climate change in a very obvious way. Um, in a way it was, I think my preoccupation had more to do with the social aspects of isolation than the environmental, um, or scientific aspects. Mm -hmm. And this idea of, um, kind of living in a culture that encourages isolation almost as a form of social responsibility, that you're better off leaving people alone than messing with things kind of. And that, I think that was a preoccupation that really drove writing this story. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and how did you actually put the story together? What was your process? Did you kind of do it all at once? You do it in chunks, put it together. How, how do you write? Um, you know, everything I do, I, I, it feels, which is, it feels totally different truthfully. And this is perhaps why I'm such an inefficient artist. Um, so, you know, I'm a cartoonist and a fiction writer. And often when I start a piece, I really don't know the medium. So I have a, I definitely have an idea of what I want to do. For instance, this piece is illustrated. I had no intention. As a matter of fact, I was kind of saying, I'm going to just write something. I'm, you know, yeah. We're not, I just finished a book with a hundred illustrations. And of course, by the time this thing was done, it was fully illustrated. But, um, so you never know, but with this piece, it, no, I, I worked on it over four years probably. And it took on many different forms. It evolved a lot over time. I was really had trouble cracking the narrative structure of this piece. Um, so, uh, it became more about the world around Schultz than just Schultz himself. Um, and then, once I started working with the people at Radix and with, with Lance in particular, um, he really encouraged me uh, to bring illustrations into it. So that was very late, late in it. It was really the end. We, we had already published it, edited. Actually, the editing process with Radix was really interesting, too, because um, they're, they're great. Lance is a great editor. Um, and we actually rewrote the story a lot, probably more than anything I'd published before did I work with an editor, including my book. So that was a pretty, pretty interesting process. 
Wow. Yeah. That yeah. sounds, uh, that sounds pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's always one of the things that I've noticed when talking with authors is how much they talk about the change that happens to a, to a story during the editing process and how, you know, often what you start with looks nothing at all like what you end with. Yeah. And, and it's kind of, it's, it's one of those things that's, that's kind of hidden from a reader, right? Where, right. where it's, it's not at all clear that what you're reading wasn't just what somebody just typed out from their head and, you know, went straight to the page. Exactly. And, and I think that's always, it's always interesting to me. And so I don't know, well, I mean, was there anything, you just detailed kind of an interesting and lengthy and, and slightly different than normal process. Was there anything that was particularly difficult? Were there any real pain points for you personally along the way? Yeah, you know, um, this story, the original draft of it came out pretty quickly, which is not normal for me. Um, and like I said, I was living in an environment where there wasn't a lot of distraction. It was the middle of the winter in the north country of New York. There's a lot of snow and quiet. Um, and it was a very long story. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what it is now. Maybe it's a 12,000 word story now. At some point, it was over 20,000 words. Wow. So, yeah. Um, so... What happened was, and, and there was times, you know, before I met Lance and did this with Radix, there was times that there were certain literary journals that were considering publishing it, but it's a weird length. And through that process, um, I, I almost cut the story in half, which is a very good thing. But, you know, we always talk about the key to rewriting revision. I'm a creative writing professor is, is mm -hmm. cutting, getting rid of things. And it's, it's like such a understood idea at this point, but it's not easy, you know? Right. You, look at yeah. you just cut. But the thing is you can cut the wrong, and everyone just says it like, just be brave and cut. Except the thing is you can cut the wrong things. Yes. You know, like I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm always, my students are so afraid to cut anything. So I just encourage them to cut, you know, liberally, but figuring out what to cut um, was a big part of this and getting it down. And then I ended up having to fill in a lot of gaps. Um, so a lot of stuff is new as well. And the Midori character in particular was a fairly minor character. And in a way, it became her story. Uh, I mean, she's on the cover of the book um, yeah. as the rewrite happened. Hmm. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's just quickly delve into the, the illustrations. I didn't have a chance to, to look and see what, what uh, your style was elsewhere. But is this... Is, is the way that you illustrated the book kind of similar to what you've done in the past? Did you develop a new way of, of drawing here? How did you decide exactly what the illustrations were going to look like and, and which parts were going to be illustrated? Um, yeah, so the, the, my drawing style is pretty inconsistent, like everything I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. But this, the, like this style here with the, the heavy black you know, the brush black lines and the big blocks of color. That's a probably as, as familiar a style as to any that I use. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I kind of like this because it came from an editor that I should do this. And I thought, yeah, why don't I do that? So I, but I kind of had to move quickly. So I just drew the way that was most comfortable to me. And I just, and I love it. I mean, I love reading those early 20th century novels, Evelyn Waugh, things like that, James Thurber, where you, there was a real tradition of illustrating your work, uh, not always themselves, um, 
But so I thought it would be fun just to put these little occasional illustrations in there with captions, kind of like a, a novel from a hundred years ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought it was interesting too. It, uh, it's, I think it's always good to, to help the reader pause and, and, uh, give them a little bit direction or focus or help them kind of latch on to something as they're kind of trying to find their way through the story. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the, let's talk about the story. So, I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about the wind wall, so it does this, you know, we start out and it's doing this great job of perfectly controlling the weather. It's beautiful days every day. Uh, how does that affect the people in the story? How are their lives different? What are the, the outcomes that have now occurred in society after the wind wall has kind of been created? Um, I think on the one hand, obviously the reason it's considered the greatest feat of engineering of, of their time is because it's brought an incredible amount of stability, mm -hmm. uh, and predictability, which is, you know, I guess kind of interesting. And I mean, it's kind of funny if you look at the time between when I started writing the story and where we live now, it's, you know, I mean, it, it, this is not like it's some direct address of the presidency or something, but that it is those four years. And, uh, it's kind of interesting because we, I think one of the things we've really lost over these past four years is, is, is predictability, right. Is, is mm -hmm. part, it's this fear of like, at any point, just something crazy can happen every morning. Right. And, um, so I think what Schultz delivered was the opposite with that, um, it comes, uh, I think fear, um, because when you have such a controlled environment, when your walls are built so well, um, there is an intense fear that you can survive beyond them. And one of the facts is that Schultz and which is well known, um, uh, amongst his colleagues, almost a, a point of pride is that Schultz has never been to what they call the mainland. He's never been off their Island city. He's built this wall. He was born at a time before the wall, obviously, because he built it. Um, but he lived during a time where the the weather became so unpredictable, it was it was untenable. And he has never gone to the mainland. There's no interest. And um, yeah, so the idea is that I think there, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear in confrontation. There's a lot of fear in complication. In, um and people are living lives that try, they try to interfere with each other as little as possible because they've created an environment where they're interfered with as little as possible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's a great point and raise, uh, it kind of connects with several other questions I want to ask in the sense that, yeah, you mentioned that Schultz has never been to the mainland. It's referenced a couple of times that, you know, when his students come and suggest that it's kind of crazy, like, sure, go off there, you know, deal with the madness and real weather and all that. And I saw kind of an interesting parallel there, you know, in, in terms of how we live our lives. And when we think about where we're going and what we're doing, are we kind of unconsciously taking the luxuries that we have and comparing and thinking about where we go based on what we have to deal with? You know, to what extent are we, are we uh, imprinting like that when we're considering what, either where we travel, maybe jobs that we take, you know, or how are they comparing, you know, what we're doing now versus what we might do. Is, is that the kind of thing that we just as humans are doing constantly? Or, or do you think that this is something that is really more focused in on, on maybe the weather or, or more particular things that we can actually see? It, a lot of this is based on physical realities. It's based on mm -hmm. stuff. 
and it's based on place and you know stability i think is important i mean i think we're learning that right now where we live with a lack of stability in certain ways and we're seeing how harmful that can be especially to people on the margins of of the economic margins and and in the case of our country the literal physical margins right yeah. um so um stability is important but i do think it's especially those of us who live more comfortable lives, um, it can be incredibly crippling uh, because we have, we are, we live in a time where we can really, as, as middle-class people, we can really engineer um, very comfortable lives and um, you become accustomed to that. Uh, and um, going away from that, in a physical sense can, can be, uh, can be scary, especially when you don't do it right. When you do do, yeah. there's a lot to be learned, but the idea of, of moving away. And like you say, particularly with jobs and, 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 and geography. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing that you mentioned there is the idea of non-interference. And this is a big, uh, idea that plays out in a couple different ways in the story. And that was really interesting to me, you know, that, that people should be left alone. Uh, you know, the, the intricacies of the way that the, the waiter kind of waited on the, the people in the story. Uh, so interesting to me. So, you know, how, how does that affect things in the story? And how do, how are we like that or not like that? You know, and I feel like there are some ways in our society where there is a lot of non-interference. We want to leave people alone. But on the other hand, there are plenty of ways where we are directly interfering with people a lot, and that is is seemingly okay. So, yeah. you know, how how does that how does that work? Where where it's not always clear uh, in terms of the acceptable interferences or not? Yeah, I mean, this is the place where I want to be careful about broad generalizations. You know, it's hard sure, to sure, sure. because it's like our society today. You know, like. Yeah, yeah. Students' papers, you know, in society today. Um, <laughs> but, but I do. But there's definitely things I notice in an intimate sense. So I like when you say that. I feel that we have a lot of allowance for interference on a structural, right? That mm -hmm. on a structural level, um, you, know, you know, even with a supposed libertarian president or whatever you want to. I don't know what you call it, but you know, like yeah, yeah. the idea is that. On a structural level, telling people you can't live here, you can't be here, things like that. But on a personal level, and this, I mean, I don't want to feel like some kind of like, you know, back in the old days. But like, it does seem that, um, you know, and you and I both live in Brooklyn, which is supposed to be this place where people live on top of each other and are really in each other's business. Um, and they are, I think, in a lot of ways. But you do... And this may be a very immediate reaction, but I, I do see like some sort of evolution towards people more and more getting out of each other's way. You know, it may be very, it may be a reaction very specifically to what's happening on my street and the streets around me, you know, and, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not prepared to address, you know, some issue as broad as gentrification or something like that. But the idea is that people, that there, there's an idea of social responsibility, which is which is intimate and personal mm -hmm. and it feels like any kind of emphasis of that is now seen as antiquated and almost stodgy, like saying mm -hmm. it comes off as like, why don't you say hello to someone who walks by? Well, first of all, I don't think it's the craziest suggestion. 
uh, if you live in a neighborhood. Um, but beyond that, it's the idea of like that you that you actually have a social responsibility. You owe the person just by living near them geographically, <laughs> um, because that's the contract that we signed on. Let's talk about some of the other characters besides Schultz. So uh, let's start with Stacy Graham, who we're introduced to pretty early. So who is Stacy Graham, and how did her relationship with Schultz unfold throughout the story? Because I thought it, it was kind of interesting how they interacted with one another. So Stacy Graham is Schultz's student, um, uh, who is a, a, a underclass student at the uh, university uh, academy. Um, she's very driven. Um, uh, wants to do well academically. Um, hasn't shown to Schultz though that she's particularly curious. The way he sees her is that she wants to get ahead um, as a student and then eventually professionally, but doesn't seem like she necessarily wants to learn. That said, Schultz is actually not the best teacher. Um, he's somebody who did well professionally and was given, uh, you know, what we would call, uh, you know, a, an endowed chair kind of would be in our world and is there as a figurehead mostly. Um, and something Schultz, I don't think really reflects on is that he hasn't given her the education that she wants, uh, yet he just kind of seems to her as a, as a pain in the neck, you know? Um, and so it's the idea is that Stacy, um, suggests that she knows something better. And she suggests even that she knows the weather is changing. There's an anomaly that basically she's suggesting his great invention is failing. Um, and Schultz must understand there may be some truth to that, but he doesn't really want to admit it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's always, that's always the thing when someone attacks your creation, you know, you can, you can instantly want to defend, you can, you know, not believe them. Uh, you know, it, to me, it was interesting throughout the story who sort of took whose side, you know, who, who was the side of, you know, of the wind wall's fine. There can never be a problem versus, oh, uh, there's a breeze. Interesting. You know, what's, what's, what's going on here. Um, and so I think one of the, the core characters that was sort of in between the two of them and, and, and interfaced with them was, was my Dory. Um, and she was so interesting to me. I mean. So I, I just first wanted to check in on, on her, on her, just on her as a person, her as a character, because she does wear sunglasses all the time. She's a great librarian. She can read through everything and get you good results. And she's known to be the top person, uh, but she just can't really see. <laughs> she's kind of, her sight's a mess basically because of her screen, uh, her screen time. So, I mean, to me, again, you talked earlier about the wind wall being kind of a, a, a allegory for climate change. To me, this was a bit of a connection to you know our our screen time and our computer time, and we're both staring at screens right now. And yeah. uh, you know, uh, most people that I know their their work is tied to screens. Uh, I guess, how do you think about screens now, and, and how do you think about what our relationship to them is? Yeah, I mean, right, yeah. So certainly she's a blindness that's derived from looking at screens all the time. Um, or not a, you know, the, the, a sight impairment. Um, right. Yeah, no, I, screens are tough. Um, 
I think one of the reasons that I've continued drawing is it allows me to spend a lot of hours making art that is not in front of a screen. Um, mm -hmm. I even become frustrated sometimes where, um, I write my first drafts of my prose by hand, but of course, most of the actual writing obviously because it happens on a computer. Um, and I almost find my, it almost makes revising hard for me, but I've had a real react. I've had a real reaction to screens in the last few years. I used to, you know, I don't know if I would have ever called myself a futurist, but I used to be obsessed with all this stuff, you know, the, yeah. the, the, whatever, reading Cory Doctorow and the problem <laughs> of, sure. you know, the future. Um, and I've made a hard turn on that, you know, I more or less quit social media, uh, which my publishers don't always love. Um, but, um, I, now I'm raising children and you just see, and I, and I teach college students every day. Um, and you just see the struggles that are so obviously avoidable by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't rocket science. Um, you know, it's like, I do think, you know, in my most hopeful days, I, you know, I think about my children's children looking back at today and our kids use of iPhones is like basically feeding them cigarettes. Um, right. It's very addicting. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, you know, if you hope, if we can ever overcome the Silicon Valley more, you know, moralistic machine, it'll be like, wait, back in the day, you, you just thought it was cool to give an 11 year old a phone for 12 hours a day. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's us talking about cigarettes, I think, but, um, yeah, I think that, that, um, that, yeah, there's definitely in creating the character, there's a reaction that um, that the the numbness of of screen scrolling has uh, has has made it hard for us to see outside. When you go outside, you go away from it, um, and it's almost literal, you know. And mm -hmm. this character works in a basement and has trouble walking around in the in the daylight without big green sunglasses. Um, uh, and I think like. Um, that's the same thing with us. The more time we're spent numbing ourselves, the tougher it is sometimes to operate outside of that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I, you know, I wondered the extent to which she or, or her behavior is then connected to that, right? Because she, you also portray her as someone who's kind of a drunk. She's always looking for the next drink. She goes to the, the parties because there's free booze. Uh, she sleeps with Schultz. She kind of sneaks into his place and is excited for that. So she, she's also doing engaging in these other kind of risky behaviors, I think, throughout the story. Uh, do you think they're connected somehow? Do you think it's all kind of that was that's her personality and, and you know, the, the sunglasses are an outcome of one risky behavior she's, she's engaging in? Or, or is there something else happening? Uh, yeah, I mean, I do think, I think she's, um, somebody who, you know, I really, I, if I, I don't normally say things like this, but, uh, I like her. I like that character, like as a, mm -hmm. as a person, she, and I think it's because I, I feel like Midori is, um, she's in a way more wise. Uh, and I think she's wise to the fact, um, that despite being good at what she does, there's there there's perhaps an emptiness, and I think she's looking to engage when she's out of that environment. You know, 
Um, she drinks at the party. She goes to the party, you know, which Schultz would very right. even do. Um, she, you know, has a relationship with this guy and what, I mean, it's not a deep relationship, but it's something, you know, and it seems like she's willing to take risks to connect, um, uh, to some extent, you know? Yeah. 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 Hmm. Uh, one of the other things I thought was, was fascinating about this world you created is that there's this idea of non-interference, but there's also this idea of extreme openness, transparency about your opinions. You know, people are allowed to say that things are bad to someone's face, you know, in a way that uh, isn't really acceptable here, or at least in, in, in my world. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's always something people kind of have fantasies about, right? You kind of have this like this like telling off your employer or or whatever else, where you get to actually tell it like it is. So, I, I don't know. Do, do you have a sense of what's holding us back? There is there are there some some groups where that transparency is okay? Uh, how would how would we deal with that emotionally? Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully what's holding us back is caring about our fellow uh, people around us, right? Like, in a way, I think it's like here, the idea is where it's basically considered uh, unacceptable to confront or argue with people. So the idea is that it's, in a way, it's not really a brutal truth because you can say what you think because there's no fear of somebody showing that they're offended. Or showing that they're hurt. So you're basically insulated from the emotional fallout that still exists, right? The person still is hurt. So, you know, in the story, the the chair of the department announces um, a broad series of layoffs. And it's just kind of a sentence that's dropped with no explanation. She moves on and no one can be like, what the hell did you just say? You know, Um, and um, and I think and I think because. I think we do live in certain media environments now where there is a lot of this, a lot of people criticizing without confronting the results of their criticisms. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, online environments particularly encourage that. Uh, that's basically the foundation of Twitter. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and I think that's what I was kind of experimenting with here. Let's see where... People can say what they think, but not then get into the complexities of, of the, the response to those emotions. Yeah, yeah. Which is a sort of cheat, I think, to yeah to some degree, right? Totally. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because the, the way I thought of it was almost like, well, you have the wind wall to control the weather, and there's also something similar going on to control the people to some extent, you know, in terms of non-interference, in terms of tuning their emotional sensitivity. Um, they, they were not quite, uh, maybe, maybe they were shells of people to some degree, or there, there was some other, you know, modification to them that, that made them not quite human. The, yeah, that's right. And that, and that's, and there's some commentary on that. That's where I think Schultz's insight does come in is that he created a scientific theory that was then applied as a social theory. And he reveals a few times in the story that he, he thinks this is silly, you know, it's like, so of course I'm, I'm the guy who wrote the book that, uh, that brought all of this upon us. But the idea is, look, 
if we can create a controlled environment where the the weather doesn't mess with us while it tears apart the rest of the world, um, why don't we create social environments where uh, we don't mess with each other um, and just stay out of each other's way? The best thing you can do is just get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I do think, you know, and and not that this was written as some sort of political allegory, but it does seem on a macro political scale. It's, uh, it's an opinion we hear more and more and more. And even though, to be real specific about it, even though it's um, often ascribed to the political right in our country and with tags like libertarianism or whatever you want to call it or traditional conservatism, I don't even know the terms. I think it's not isolated to that in any way, you know, and I think that um, people, whatever, you know, however they define themselves politically, I think we see a lot of embracing that, like, um, don't bother people is the best thing you can do. Uh, mm -hmm. Doesn't, which is meant best don't harass people, but it also means don't go out of your way to help people either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Double edged. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Well, I don't want to ruin the ending. There was quite a dramatic ending in terms of, uh, the outcome of, of the issues here, whether or not the, the wall is falling apart and, and what's going to happen to Schultz and, and all that. Uh, it was at least a surprise to me, but one thing I thought that was interesting was that there, you know, there was kind of a discussion throughout the book of what, what was actually happening and, and who was kind of pulling the levers of power here. And, and you kind of wrap that up at the end and it turns out that there, that, you know, there, there, the elements of a conspiracy were kind of there possibly. And there, and there were some people behind the scenes kind of, um, I don't know what's uh, I'm trying to do the, the wizard of Oz behind the curtain, right? There's, there's someone there. And so I guess I was trying to think for myself, like, okay, this is, this is probably also true to some extent. In, in my life, you know, there are people maybe that I'm even not aware of that are pulling levers and, and making decisions and informing my opinion even and, and how that's, you know, affecting my life. And so I guess what I'm trying to think through is, you know, knowing that this is likely the case, you know, how can, how can we go about our lives? Should we be upset that there are people with more power than us making decisions that we don't always have full transparency on? Should we accept that as a necessary kind of part of the society we built, how do we deal with, um, how do we deal with something like that? <laughs> um, geez, if I can answer that question. Uh, so, you know, I think I, obviously I don't have a full solution to that. Um, right, right. but I do think, um, you know, obviously it's important to be aware, to try to look at, to think structurally. I do think that we, we're often pushed into conversations that don't look at structures. And this is one of the things I, I really enjoyed writing a work of science fiction because that's what really I think is the core of speculative fiction is fiction that can take on structural issues. Um, right. And I think it's important for us to reflect on structural issues um, and not just accept um, the paradigms as they're handed to us, right. Of how we take in media, how we, see uh, the political spectrum, how, um, what should be normal, you know? Um, 
And, you know, the very most obvious way I think right now is I think the biggest uh, problem we're dealing with as a collective right now is, is social media. Um, yeah. That's, I think, our biggest problem. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I, I you know, maybe, I, I tend to be an optimist about a lot of things. And I, I feel like people are waking up a little bit, you know, um, that, uh, you know, whatever Zuckerberg's going around making these speeches and most people are not too excited about them. Right. Some of the, the way we yeah. buy into all this stuff, um, seems to be losing its luster. So I don't know, but I'm sure there's statistics that show I'm totally wrong in my optimism, by the way. <laughs> um, so, um, so, but I, at least maybe we're becoming somewhat reflective and aware of how our opinions and this, this, this inability to talk to each other, where it's coming from, you know, um, yeah. And to talk to people who have different ideas on us, I mean. Um, but um, I do also think, though, that um, we do, uh, uh, and I know this is going to sound very dangerous to people, I do think we do have to trust sometimes. I think there's a lack of, there's such a deep lack of trust right now. And it's just, it's, it's you, untenable, right? You need to be able to trust certain structures. Uh, and we need to find ways that they can, um, that these structures can become trustworthy. Uh, but it's just totally a fantasy to say that, no, I want to find a way that I'm not subject to any kind of systems, right? Yeah, we have to give the government some level of trust sometimes. Yeah. It, can't, it can't always be the enemy with, yeah. with everything. Yeah, we, we need uh, water and we need roads, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stop signs. These are yeah. all important. I mean, that, that's what leads to this kind of this paranoia that has become so mainstream, you know, and but even even somebody who, you know, and just truthfully, I fall into, I'm sure a lot of stereotypes of some kind of centrist political left leaning, whatever, you know, not that I embrace these labels, but I just have to be truthful about it. Right. Um, and we act like, oh, we're not part of that. But we are because we're always talking about F this and F that, but at some point it's like, we have to embrace certain structures and systems because that's what society is. That's what being social is, is giving up your own, um, your own uh, ideas and trusting other people and, and repeatedly saying, I don't know. I don't know. I think the biggest thing that we have to learn right now is to be comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't understand everything. Mm. Yeah. And, and I'll also tag on that I wholeheartedly love science fiction for exactly the reasons that you were talking about. I think it it is such a great, almost sneaky way of, you know, putting the mirror in front of us that um, I think is is really helpful for me in a lot of ways when I think about, you know, what's going on. So, but yeah, to, I, I also totally agree with your your last point there. I think that's something we have to do and and hopefully will be will do going forward yeah yeah uh, definitely i'll definitely look forward to uh, in a couple decades reading the, the history books you know and seeing uh seeing how this is is described yeah yeah no that's true it's it's <laughs> there's something to look forward to but it's true it's like <laughs> yeah you know it's like to see like it, it there is you know every time is exceptional i think one of the mistakes we often make is, historically is to always think um, our time is singular, right? Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time with 18 year olds, so, um, I hear this a lot like these days, and then they'll tell you something that's like totally normal, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we all we all do that. I think it's it's yeah. the way that we have to yeah that we have to think about things because it's what we're living. It's what we're kind of assaulted with every day. It's the media. It's and so it, it is interesting to think about how, uh, especially people now will say things like, oh my God, things are changing so fast and got like who, you know, the technology is coming out so quickly and everything, you know, and, uh, you know, I read a, a book Master Switch by this guy, Tim Wu, and he's talking about kind of the start of information empires, like when TV was invented and when radio was invented and, you know, uh, electricity you know these these things that were slightly bigger influence. I mean, maybe maybe even our social yeah. media has has as big of an influence as TV or something. But you know, electricity, you know, stuff like that. I mean, yeah. this is there. There were also periods in which there was rapid change and no one knew what was happening, and there was all this crazy technology. And you know, it, it, it's and, and we survived. So yeah. it's interesting just to see. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see what happens before we get too too far on a tangent again. Yeah, but um, to wrap up this discussion, um, you know, we've we've kind of hopped around here in terms of the story and the ideas in it and the characters. Is there anything else that you hoped people would get from the story that we haven't covered yet? No, I gotta say, John, I really appreciate your reading. Um, it's 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 heartening to hear somebody who's this thoughtful about it, and you connected with a lot of stuff that uh you know i don't think a lot about like what somebody gonna get from it but you connected with a lot of things and brought up a lot of discussions i wouldn't have even predicted which i really appreciated um so oh, thanks yeah i don't know that i have anything in particular beyond that i hope that people read it i hope they you know i hope it's a good story too they enjoy kind of the personal inter interactions of these characters and just seeing just uh seeing how they navigate the the kind of tensions and anxieties of, of the particular world they live in yeah yeah, no, I think that's what makes the story. That's that's why it's a story and not uh, not anything else. Right, so, right, yeah. Um, <laughs> so what? Uh, so you've got you've got a lot. You're you're an illustrator, professor. You're writing. What what are you up to now? Do you have any big projects that you want to plug or anything else that's happening? Yeah, you know, I've got a lot of stuff. Um, nothing coming out uh, anytime very soon. But I'm in the late stages of. Uh, finishing up a novel that actually began uh that I started writing at the same time I started writing the story actually um and it was a novel preoccupied with weather um mm. but, but yeah and it's uh the weather stuff has changed so, uh, quite a bit I've, I've been I've been working on some rewrites of it with my agent recently uh and again I'm you know it's it's big structural changes but but I love the idea again this idea of trying to trust others and the yeah. the idea of community i love working with lance on this was amazing it was a great experience and he was new to editing and really impressive at how he did it you know and and right. working with my agent who really digs deep into things uh on this novel has been a great you know i feel like it's a great fortune that i have somebody who cares that much about my writing um and uh it's a novel um about family novel about um a couple brothers. It's about an adult family that's kind of split apart after a tragedy. And one brother is a Franciscan priest living in Mexico. The other is a sitcom writer living in LA. And it's about them trying to get back to see their mother, uh, their, their perhaps dying mother in New York, uh, during, um, kind of a, a worldwide weather catastrophe. Um, 
So uh, it's been it's been fun writing that. And then um, for many years, I've been working with my friend Lincoln Michelle on a, um, a graphic novel called <laughs> Werner Herzog Park Ranger that uh, <laughs> okay. portrays just that. We, we published the selection of that in The Believer a few months back, and uh, hopefully we'll we're trying to finish that and we might serialize some more of that on the believers website. And, um, yeah, and I've got another graphic novel hopefully coming out soon, uh, with a collaborator named an artist. I actually didn't draw it for once called Matt Leosa. And that's a story that kind of deals with some of the stuff we've been talking about, about, uh, people living in Brooklyn and, and raising children. Um, huh. so okay. both little projects. Yeah. 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 Oh, that sounds exciting. It's good to stay busy. Yeah. yeah. We've got a lot, a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah. All right, well, let's wrap it up. I'd like to do a little thunder round at the end, get to know you a little bit, and we'll call it a day. You ready? Sure. All right. What's your favorite food and or drink? That's uh, a tough one. Um, I love uh, ramen. I like a, a like Ooh. real ramen from a good ramen shop. Okay. Because you were was it? Did you discover that before Tokyo, or was that when you were in Tokyo you you found? Uh, yeah, that became a habit. In to- so uh, yeah. Uh, Ramen was something out of a package before I lived in Japan, but I became, <laughs> yeah. and luckily the world caught up with me. So when I moved back to America, ramen came with me. There you go. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, where's your favorite place you've ever been? You know, I guess uh, it's, it's hard to say, but Tokyo does have a really special place for me. I, um, I love the fact, what I love about Tokyo is that you can discover the strangest thing in the most not unremarkable places. <laughs> mm, okay. Yeah. That's a good selling point. I've yeah. never been. It's definitely yeah. on the list. Go. Cool. <laughs> go, go, go. Just yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, all right. Last question. If you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? All right. Uh, all right. Well, let's skip presidential elections. I'm a New York Mets fan, so that there's too many there. Um, Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, only lasted 10 years. And I don't think it would be right that Bill Watterson would still be making it now, but if we could have gotten five more years of Calvin and Hobbes, I think that would have been a great thing. Wow, that's a great answer. <laughs> and as someone who is part of a family of Calvin and Hobbes lovers, I think uh, I can definitely get behind that. We have all of them and uh, read them growing up and reread them now. So it's, yeah, I think that's... Uh, I'm glad to hear it. It's a great thing. Yeah, of course. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, go If you haven't, if anyone listening has not read Calvin and Hobbes, stop, go read Calvin and Hobbes. You will, you will be blown away. I wholeheartedly agree. All right. Well, on that note, uh, John, this has been great. The, the chat book out there, always blue Radix media. Uh, if there's a, it's a whole part of a series and uh, if there are futures science fiction series, but always blue is a great story to read. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with me. Thanks so much, John. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. (laughs) 